Hello and welcome to episode 184 of Retro Encounter, RPG Fans Weekly Podcast of Many Topics. I'm Mike Salosi, and today we're here for a second episode all about East, the Oath in Felgana. Uh, the three of us have finished, and we have some thoughts, mostly that Chester's a dick, but uh, we will elaborate that on it very soon. So Hillary, Chester, dick or not a dick? Uh, I'm, I'm going to have to say he's still a dick. Okay, and Tina, Ch- is Chester a dick or not a dick? Yeah. All right. Glad that we cleared that up. Wait, now, we left off in the previous episode uh, basically talking up until the Elder Mountains uh, ice cavern part of Oath and Felgana, but before, and I do want to sort of go through the rest of the story linearly because I think it, uh, because there a lot of big uh, plot points <laughs> happen in the second half of the game. But first I want just a couple overall impressions. Um, and especially since this was the uh, like the first complete East playthrough of any game in the series for either of you. Uh, starting with you, Tina, did you overall have a positive or negative feeling about Othin Felgana, especially the second half and ending of the game? Overall, I really liked it, but I think I liked the first half better than the second half. Okay. Like, I didn't really like some of the platforming sections in the second half. Okay, yeah, that's all yeah. right. Yes, especially the clock tower. That that, uh, oh. that there's um there's a, a little bit of platforming in sort of the whole game, but uh, way more in the clock tower than any other portion. Yeah. We'll we'll get to that when we get to the clock tower more specifically. But Hillary, same question. Overall feelings on East Theothan Felgana, especially regarding the second half. Um, overall, I had a lot of fun with it. Um, it was an enjoyable game, and I was always looking forward to playing it when I booted it up. Aside from the fact that there were some times that I definitely got stuck, either because of bosses or the platforming, and got frustrated. But you know, like it was—I would say it was in the realm of I was frustrated for a short while, and then once I actually got through whatever it was, I was—I felt accomplished. So that was nice. Yeah. Um. Let's jump around a little bit about boss battles, uh, because the boss battles were the obstacle that I had the first time I played this game. Again, I, I played this game for the first time uh, around six years ago, I think, and then I and this is my second playthrough, uh, and I did both versions on normal. But uh, like every time I got stuck in the game, it was because of a boss battle, and I remember the uh, specifically. Um, just trying to think back a little bit. The very first boss battle of the game, Dularn. Then the uh, the second of the two fire boss battles uh, um, gave me trouble. I, I think Hillary, you mentioned that you found the fire eater harder than the harder than the the bird. I thought the bird was harder than the fire eater. I don't know what it was, but by the time I was at the end of the lava area, I, I think I just had a slightly easier time for whatever reason memori- memorizing the bird boss's patterns. I, I don't know. I, I just I I think it was because the the maybe the bird has easier patterns, but. Just deals a lot of big hit damage. I I, yes. I remember like I just got I would get I would be doing okay and then I would get wiped out in two hits. Yep. Um, the, yep. the, this is the the first time I played this game. I, w- I had an easier time the second time around. And also the that stupid horse in the dungeon where you can only damage its tail. Oh but, my god! Yeah, and and, oh, and, and just okay. yeah, and and just it, oh, I thought it was I thought it was a horse or maybe even a rhino, but it, it looks like yeah, a, it okay. looks like a sort of legged tank, but it has this stubby tail at the back, where it's the only place where it can take damage, and it also fires missiles and drops mines everywhere. And I a uh, lot of them. Yeah, um, I, it was the I, I, I died once this playthrough, and way more than once when I first played the game. I like uh, I had just just the nightmare of it came all came rushing back when I uh, when I encountered it uh, when I beat uh, beat the game a few days uh, excuse me when I fought it a few days ago. 
And that's in the space between the uh, the castle and the clock tower. The castle has like three bosses in it. That was it, I thought it was by far the most elaborate dungeon, but we'll get to that in a bit. Um, and then uh, Chester, that agile mofo, his, his final boss battle was a bit of a challenge. And the final boss battle, who just loads the screen with fire and lasers and all kinds of stuff, they, they, these were all challenging um, stop gaps for me that I remember having to die and maybe level up some more and then figure out his pattern and then focus more on ev- more on evasion than offense most of the time. Uh, it, again, I think I mentioned this last episode, but it reminded me of like a shmup, like I'm playing Gradius or something. But at least they make Adol pretty agile. He moves quickly. You get a double jump. You get some fancy uh, some fancy movement abilities. Mostly talking talking about wind magic here. Like I think the boss battles never seem unfair. They're always un- intense, but they're learnable and beatable. Even and even though I'm not great at action RPGs, but I was able to beat them all the first time around by just by hitting my head against them a little bit. Did, uh, did, were any of them any part of this game too difficult that you thought was maybe a deal breaker that almost made you quit? For me, it was the platforming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially in the clock tower. Yeah, this game but, is like, not great with platforming, especially since yeah. if you have to do something with a double jump and the wind, there's a bit of a delay before you get the yeah. wind. So you have yeah. to like sort of cast the wind when you're in the middle of the jump instead of the top of your jump. That 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 uh, threw me off a couple times. And I, I don't think it's unfair to say that the game punishes you a little bit if you miss some of those things, because you usually end up falling very far into oh, a yeah. group of relatively strong enemies. <laughs> or an area with a ton of spike pits or something. Right. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, you do have to do the sort of Zelda balancing act thing a little bit with some walking over some very narrow corridors, you know, with a risk of falling. A lot of just very careful double jumping. Um, Ease is, is, it's never about the platforming, but these, uh, the three sort of uh, solo action ones from the 2000s, uh, Six Napishtim, Three Felgana, and Origin, all three of those have a little bit of it, and... I don't know. I don't. I don't really love it in each in either of them, any of them. How would you compare the platforming in this one to the other games? Like, was it more difficult or? I think it's a little bit easier in Origin. It has about the same amount of platforming, but the yeah. uh, that version of Wind Magic is a little bit easier to deal with. And one of the characters uh, doesn't instead of having a wind spell like Unica and Adol, he has a like a like a like a, like a more like a levitate. Okay. And. Huh. Uh, and the third character has sort of a double jump and an air dash, making him sort of more agile than the other two. And E6, uh, I don't remember E6 super well. I played it, again, four or five years ago, after after Felgana. I, I played the PS2 version, which has a which I think is not uh, not quite as tight as the PC version. But and also, uh, I mean, it's an older game, so the controls are a little clunkier. I remember the boss fights being about the same level of quality as Oath and Felgana, but the stage design wasn't as good. And there was a, there's a couple platforming parts, but I don't remember any of them being as difficult as the clock tower. Yeah. The, the, the thing that throws me off in that one is that uh, Adol has three different swords, so the combos feel different depending on what sword you have equipped. And the, and magic is more like a super move and less like a and less like a, a tool in that game. Yeah. So and the and the so magic feels different. And um Edel doesn't move quite as clear as cleanly, but I know that there were improvements made to the PC version uh, or the Western release of the PC version, so it's possible that uh, it's a little bit better than I than how I experienced it. Uh, and and I should and I should mention there's barely any platforming in the uh, the later ones. The the 
East Games with party with uh, full party members, uh, Seven, Celseta, and Lacrimosa of Donna. Barely any platforming. It probably doesn't even count. It's uh, it's the it's bigger, cooler dungeons and sort of party combat, but little in the way of puzzles or platforming. Uh, if if anything, I sort of like the stage design in Oath and Felgana the most because it's um. It's very vertical, especially with like the ice cave as you're going down and the clock towers are going up. There's a it feels yeah, there, there's yeah. a cool verticality to stages and they're not strictly flat and linear. I like that a lot, and uh, um, that was also the case in Origin because in East Origin you're basically going up a tower for uh, the large majority of the game, and, and I I like how uh, like, like saying that there's that there are puzzles is a little bit misleading, but there's a, a good number of different directions and hidden areas. And small puzzles like uh, collecting the items for the uh, for the chapel area in Valstein Castle. This, the stage design is is cool in uh, in Oath and Felgana, and also cool in Origin. But I think those two have better stage design than the rest of the series. Uh, so, uh, Hillary, do you have any thoughts on the uh, the dungeons and play areas of Oath and Felgana? Oh, geez. Overall, overall, I like the variety. I think I touched on this a little bit. Last it's a, time that I it's could... a little bit like you're playing eight Mega Man stages. Like, oh, here's the Ice Man stage, and here's Fire Man stage, and here's uh, Mountain Man stage, even though that's not a robot master. <laughs> a little bit, but I don't know. I appreciate it because it's, it's a nice contrast from some other RPGs where things are kind of gray or it's, I don't know, even even stages that you see often in RPGs like the mines, it didn't didn't feel generic, so that was nice. And that's probably a lot because of the verticality we're talking about. We mentioned uh, that the music is pretty good in this game in the previous episode, and I think that holds true maybe even better through the end of the game because uh, Valestine Castle and the Clock Tower are my two favorite tracks of the whole game. I was, uh, yeah. They, they, they both really fire me up. But um, I, I think music sets a tone pretty well. Like there's a, lot, there's a great feeling of forward momentum in like the, the mountain stage. And in the Ilburn's, Ilburn's Ruins stage music, but the uh, the mines are like a horror movie. There, there's just this incredible feeling of dread in the music. <laughs> the and, mines uh, were not my favorite spot. In yeah, and then, then the clock tower, like it, it goes to this weird dancey, trancey bit with uh, with a lot more um, a lot more electronic sounds than the sort of I don't know more orchestra in the rest of the soundtrack. It's it's an eclectic soundtrack that doesn't always seem to fit together, but at least all the individual uh, pieces are cool. I, I really like the soundtrack in Oath and Felgana. Um, Tina, did you have a favorite song that you remember? Uh, I remember, I think it was right after the town was attacked, there was this one song playing just for a little while that was a remake of one of the songs from the Super Nintendo game, from Wanderers. Oh, nice, and yeah. Then, a, a lot of the music in this game is remade from the Super Nintendo version, but, uh, but yeah, not. Yeah, that was like one of my favorite songs from the original game, so I was so happy to hear that. That's cool. Uh, Hillary, do you have a favorite track that you remember? I am also a big fan of the Clock Tower music. I, I thought it would, it gave a cool ambiance to a, a well, an otherwise difficult stage. It kind of elevated it for me. <laughs> but I, I was a little bit surprised that it had like a bass drop and a and like a you know a snare going like like just building up like that. Like it's you know a little bit dance holly for a evil clock tower creating a dark ritual. But can't win them all, I guess. But uh, let's roll it back a little bit. Uh, where we left off was at the ice cave, and where Adol gets the uh, terror bla- bracelet with topaz gems infused in it that lets him break through walls with a little dash attack. 
then you fight a boss against a dragon with stone legs, and you can use the earth to um, hack out his legs and make him trip and then attack his face after he's down. Uh, not a very challenging boss fight in, uh, compared, <laughs> no. to others, compared to others in this game. But, uh, but most importantly of all, you're trapped in the ice cave afterwards, and, and Dogi does his signature move, crushes through a wall to save his best friend. Yay! <laughs> uh, you may or may not have known this, but Dogi does that in every single game in which he appears. He smashes through a wall to save Adol. It, it's uh, again not a, he's Dogi's not in every East game, but he's in more than half of them, and he always breaks through a wall, and that's why they call him Dogi the Wall Crusher. I enjoyed that very much. It's I never enjoyed it more than in East Seven, where Dogi is a playable character. Uh, not really a spoiler, since he joins you about ten minutes into the game. A very special moment when you see Dogi smash through the wall, and I hope to God that happens in East Nine Monstrum Knox uh, later this year in Japan, and, and maybe and un- at an undetermined date worldwide. But uh, shortly after that, you meet Chester again, and he stabs Dogi in the chest. Oh my God! <laughs> uh, Dogi surprised me a little bit by uh, re- by un- by realizing that Chester's evil act was ex- was an act exactly as I implied there and uh and dogi takes this remarkably in stride because dogi is the most chill dude in the entire world goes, yeah yeah i figured you were faking it but so why are you doing this man you're making elena sad <laughs> and then he that was pretty great and after getting stabbed in the chest he takes it in about as much stride as he can um going back to his uh his master's place to heal up i i did remember this happening from the first time but it doesn't make it all any less of a shocking moment uh what were your thoughts on uh, chester's first big turn because i mean he stabbed him in the chest yeah, it's like at first it seemed like he was just pretending to be the bad guy or something when he was starting to talk about his real motivations. But then when he stabbed Dogi, I was like, okay, you're still a butthole. Yeah, no, st- st- definitely still a dick. His dick status is not in question at, at this point. But uh, it, it, instead of like like revealing his motivations and revealing that he's still the you know the older brother and friend that he always was, but he's too far deep in this yeah. crazy plan yep. of his to shy away from doing things like stabbing his former best friend in the chest. And he even created a little pool of you know two thousand five pixelated blood. I know, and yet he's like, oh, I wounded him. I'm not going to kill him. But you better to give him medical attention soon. So you better <laughs> uh, so you better let me go, Adol. And Adol being the, you know, uh, uh, the good person to a fault that he is, yeah, immediately uh, takes care of Dogi instead of going after Chester. Again, a bit of a turning point. We, uh, at this point, we, underst- we realize that Chester is sort of, uh, that Chester has a, uh, you know, a deeper motivation for why he's, uh, he's doing all- everything that he's doing, and that Maguire is sort of the, the target now. So the, follow- the dungeon after this is Veilstein Castle which is probably my favorite dungeon in the game not because of the frustrating parts like the like the, you know the falling pits and and the annoying maids that dash around and throw kitchen knives at you uh, <laughs> it's a little bit of a dark implication oh yeah everyone in the castle except for six or seven people has been turned into a demon and uh, you're you're murdering like kitchen staff and soldiers here that were formerly yeah. fully human a bit of a dark implication but uh like parts of it like uh in, in, there's this, there's a, a circular area near the end of the game that has that has you go in different paths and one path has you br- um reuse the the night fire gem from the mine one path that has you need to use the uh the the, oh, the, the, the anti lava item one uh is a big ice yep. sheet where you got to put the stone shoes on again it's like it sort of recaps a lot of the different 
uh, different platforming elements and ex exploration mm -hmm. elements yeah. that uh, that you had to use in earlier oh. dungeons. And, and yeah, also, I'm... and also, it's just much more larger and labyrinthine than any other uh, any other dungeon in the game. I accidentally found my way back to the entrance at one point and had to teleport back to a, to a save point. It took it took me longer than any other dungeon, but it also felt more like a big epic dungeon than any uh, than any other in this game. I, I so I really like Velstein Castle, and it has my favorite song. So yeah, I'm a big fan. Uh, what were your thoughts on this dungeon in general? Uh, starting with you, Hillary. So they were pretty similar to to yours. I got lost a few times. Um, I really, really, really do love it when a game brings back some of those skills that you were supposed to have learned early on because I just really hate it when you get an item or an ability and never use it again. So that shout, out, shout out to the spinner in Zelda the Twilight Princess. Right. Yeah. Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess. You have that <laughs> spinner for one dungeon and then I don't think you ever use it again. Maybe for one piece of heart somewhere, but yeah. That's, exactly. that's a weakness of Zelda that I... I will clown on the series for sometimes. Continue, please. That's that's what I was thinking. Um, let's see. I I have to admit, I started calling it the Dark Souls Castle, just because of that tone you were talking about with staff being turned into zombies and just kind of the look of it and all the hits. And I, I definitely had fun at some points, like kind of trapping enemies so that I could get to them more easily without like from a distance. So it was fun, but it took me a long time. <laughs> Right. Uh, so, uh, Tina, do you have any thoughts on Valstein Castle? Yeah, it felt more like a final dungeon than the actual final dungeon. <laughs> yeah, uh, the final dungeon did one thing I thought it was cool. They had a lot of um, paths in the background and foreground yeah. as you were, uh, that made it feel like a bigger space than it actually was. But in terms of the actual dungeon content, I basically agree. Valstein is a bigger, more epic dungeon yeah. than, the than mm -hmm. Geno's Island. Like, I did like how there was such a big mix of different areas and things to do. It's just those two little platforming sections, the clock tower, and then there was this one room with, like, tiny little platforms. Yeah. I didn't like those um, two areas. That's before the first boss. Uh, there's, there's, yeah. three, there's three bosses here, plus a fourth one at the end of the clock tower. Um, that weird sort of elemental ninja guy, then the fire dog, and then the, the horse tank that, that we talked about a little bit earlier. Um, yes. I, 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 didn't, I, I sort of liked the fire elemental uh, dog a, a lot because it was uh, it's a, maybe the only boss in the game that's smaller than Adol. Yes. And, and I like it, uh, I like, this is true of lots of different kinds of games, not just East, but I like it when an action game is equally at uh, equally comfortable giving you a giant boss bigger than you are that has a great sense of scale, but also a boss the same size as you that is just dangerous and mobile and, and feels like a duel rather than a boss fight. I think Devil May Cry does this amazingly. Like uh, Dante ends up fighting his his uh, twin brother Virgil. Oh, I don't know, seven or seven or eight times over the Devil May Cry series, and it feels different than when he's fighting a giant demon that takes up an entire room. I was just going to say, shout out to Chester here, too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Chester is a perfect example of this. Um, there's a couple boss fights like this in East Origin as well, but the dog, it, it's it's unusual like, at all fighting a boss that's smaller than he is. I, I, I dug that. I, I, I like that East can mess around with scale uh, with its boss fights. Um and, and But the elemental ninja at the beginning, I don't know what it's called. I called it a ninja just because it has, I don't know, it, it vaguely looks like a, nin, like a ninja wearing a cloak. But you, uh, it, it changes colors and you have to hit it with, different ele with your different magics at, a, at appropriate times. It's kind of like, yeah. har like the harpy bosses on the mountain, but a little bit more yes. challenging. Yeah, I'm really terrible because I didn't actually figure out that you could change your bra bracelet in the boss fights until like the very end of the game. 
I had to do that all the time. It's the uh, it's it's L and R on a on a controller. But, yeah. um, it, I'm not sure what about a keyboard. Maybe I'm just, I'm just used to playing uh, the Super Nintendo Mega, yeah, Man, I didn't Mega Man controller games. I just didn't know about that. Like, maybe that's why I like Oath and Felgana so much. I treat it like a Mega Man game, and I know I already <laughs> like those. But if only Adol got a new uh, a new weapon or new superpower for every boss that he defeated, then, then it would be perfect, of course. But um, so we have that elemental ninja, then that fire dog on a bridge. I, I don't like the the 2D space bosses as much as the as the isometric area ones. Again, the uh, the the bird in the in the fire dungeon and the dog. You fight them basically on a 2D bridge, which I think is a throwback to the Super Nintendo or the original PC Engine version of. Wanderers from East because basically every boss fight was like that on a 2D plane. Yeah. And uh, I mean, that's not a great, I don't think that game is very good. So I think that obviously the boss fights are better here, but I think that having those 2D plane boss battles are a bit of a throwback. Would you say that Tina? I mean, you, you probably played more of that game than I did. Yeah. I don't think I even got to the first boss in that game. I found it so hard. I think I did get to the first boss, but I died. Is my yeah. is my very uh, foggy memory of this? Of, again, and this is the early two thousands when I tried to play a copy of it. Now, uh, uh, Hillary alluded to it before the uh, the fourth boss in the clock tower, uh, Valsine Castle section of the game is Chester one on one. He's the same uh, size as you. He has a lot of dash attacks, a little bit of invincibility. He's got his own fireballs. It's a it's a really good boss fight. I like this fight a lot. I do too. It's it's. Another one after this string of different types of boss fights. I think I had a little bit of trouble adjusting back to to fighting him. <laughs> now, uh, here's the part of the podcast where I talk about other games in the East series a little bit. Because this boss fight very specifically make, reminds me of the uh, East versus Trails fighting game. <laughs> um, nice. uh, alternative Saga, East versus Sora no Kiseki. Uh, Is that released here at all? No. Um, I was able to import it. Uh, the menus are in English. The item names are not, so I had to use a uh, translation online for that. But it's a uh, it, basically it's a fighting game in the I am pretty sure in the uh, E7 engine. That it reminded me of Power Stone because there's there's jumping, blocking, and dodging, and uh, everyone has their uh, own move set similar to E7 that you can program onto the uh, onto the four face buttons, but it's a uh, it's six characters from East Seven, six characters from Sora no Kiseki, uh, three uh, three villains including Chester, <laughs> and then and then one uh, sort of secret character, who's uh, who's from a who's from a different one of the PSP um, uh, Legend of Heroes games. But Chester in Alternative Saga is based on his move set from this boss fight. So he does the, 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 the like the sort of triple jab, the uh, a lot of different um, teleportations and like feints. He's a very agile, very evasive character in in Alternative Saga, including and he has a fireball and sort of a multi fireball. Um, this boss fight reminded me of that game because I was probably because it was fresher in my mind. I played that fighting game in between my first run of uh, of. Oath and Felgana, and now, and it, 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 uh, it, it's, I got it, you know, at an import store, but it was cheap, it was only something like $15 American, and, um, and, and if I had imported it, it, it was actually cheaper on eBay, but, it, but then shipping was almost as much as the actual cost of the game. So I, I ended up just finding it at the import store near me. But it's a, a very fun fighting game that I have plugged in this podcast a little bit. <laughs> so, uh, but if you're uh, if you're east, if you're interested in more uh, east that you can't get through uh, 
you know, <laughs> through an actual East game. That that's one way to do it. But it, it's it plays a lot like E7. So if you're comfortable with E7, then you'll be comfortable with this. But it's uh, it's uh, that game is great. Uh, um, the story is completely stupid, and you should not pay attention to that. And just <laughs> j- just play it to unlock characters and see flashy super moves. I think I have seven for PSP, but I haven't played it yet. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, it came out in PSP. It was yeah. uh, d- um, localized by Xseed, just like this game. And it had a PC version for a long time that I think was only in China and Korea. It was just an, an Asian PC port. But then I think they brought that PC port over last year. So it's a very recent enhanced PC port. If you want to play E7 that way, in, yeah, uh, I do see a on, PC on, one on Steam. On, yeah, on Steam, it probably, and it probably came out in 2018, but I'm not 100 percent sure about that. I'd have to double, double check. But uh, that game's really good. It's again, it's a party system, and not like Oath and Velgana. You control three characters at once, and you switch between them rapidly. Uh, but but the the combos and the moves and the super moves are uh, feel very feel very action RPG, very East East like, yeah. and. Um, you can pl- contr- you can play as Dogie in that one, so it's automatically the best game in the series. <laughs> What's the timeline for Seven? Because I'm looking at a picture of Dogie right now, and he looks a lot older. Um. Well, okay. The timeline for Seven is that it takes place only two or three years after this, but uh, but Dogie, uh, his his look changes a little bit. He looks younger in uh, in Memories of Celseta than in Seven, which which takes which I think takes place uh, before. But it, he just has a weird shaped face in Seven. Yeah. They they gave him a gigantic chin. Yeah. Um, and then, but then in uh, in in Lacrimosa of Dana, they give him a narrower chin and some facial hair, but also but also like a silver streak in his hair. So it's like, is is Dogi ten years older than that? At all? I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to say. But he's he's always very uh, he's always very broad and muscular. Like like when in Oath and Felgana, it'll be when Dogi's about to say something off screen. It's like it says like in a manly voice or something. Yeah. <laughs> they they make it very clear that Dogi is a muscular dude. And also, uh, speaking of Doki, shout out to Burhart, uh, his uh, his master, who's the the mountain hermit in this game. Uh, after you've beaten the game, and I think it might only be on hard or nightmare mode, you can fight Burhart in a secret boss battle. He is the uh, the sort of challenging post game boss. If you want to, yeah, I think I watched it. a little bit of a video of that, and mm-hmm. the guy couldn't beat him either. He does that massive axe throw ability uh, that you see him fight to f- using against some skeletons at the very end of the game. But yeah. he's, uh, yeah, he's hard. I I don't really always challenge hunt when I play these games. Like I don't think I've ever even tried playing an East game on nightmare mode for more than thirty minutes. But uh, yeah, it's a it's a cool boss fight. But uh, back to the Chester boss fight. After um, that happens, you realize that the, or not realize, you learn that the true mastermind of all the evil that happened here, including uh, Chester and Elena's tragic pasts, they they, grew, they were orphaned after the village in Angino's Island was destroyed, and he blamed Count Maguire all these years. But really, it was Bishop Nicholas. Yep. And and a little bit later, just at the beginning of Genos Island, Dularn, the evil sorcerer that's been tailing you the whole game, is the adorable sister Nell, the nun that uh, that hero worships Bishop Nicholas. That's that is the big twist that I hinted at, maybe a little bit too obviously in the first episode. <laughs> um, the, the turn is that uh, Nicholas is the villain. Um, they didn't. Th- I don't think this was done this elaborately in the uh, original version of the game. They just, they just, uh, the find the second to last boss is just a guy named Garland, and uh, Nicholas identifies himself as Nicholas Garland at the like right before you fight him. Uh-huh. But uh, that's that's not even very important. What is important is that he's been 
um, leading everyone on, sort of manipulating Count Maguire and betraying the townspeople for at least a decade, depending on how old Chester and Elena were when they were orphaned. And uh, he's been worshipping what he believes is a dark god named Galaban, which is the, you know, the giant monster sealed under Genos Island. And, uh, but when you fight Galaban, he says a few things that I think make a little bit more sense if you've played E6. Do you mind if I, I don't know, this, these don't really count as spoilers. Do you mind if I do a little bit of explaining behind Galaban? Go for it. Okay. Yeah. All right, sure. There's this group called the Tribe of Darkness. They're bad people. They're, they're villains or adjacent to villains in most of the East games from uh, 6 onward. And in East 6, you go and uh, you, you go to an island in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, or the East version of the Atlantic Ocean, and you uh, discover that, that the Tribe of Darkness has, was a stronger civilization many centuries in the past, and they tried to destroy the world multiple times, but were, but were stopped by, their, uh, by, by various heroes and forces including a civilization called the Eldeal, or Eldeen. I forget which it is. I think, like, it's One of them is the civilization name, and one of them is a character name. But uh, basically a, a civilization of winged people that fought the Tribe of Darkness. And in Ark of Nepishtim, the title thing, the Ark of Nepishtim, is like an ancient super weapon that, uh, was, done, that was used in the conflict between the Eldeal and the Tribe of Darkness. And Galaban, w when you fight him, says like eradicate the winged ones um and and of uh, and so, and protect the ark something like that. So I don't think Galaban is a dark god or even a demon. It's a super weapon that was developed by the tribe of darkness to attack the Eldeen, but then it was stopped by the hero Genos ages and ages ago who might be an Eldeen himself, an, an Eldeel himself. I I'm, I'm going to mix up the those two words. I'm not sure which one's the proper one and I don't feel like looking it up right now. Sorry. Uh so it's Galaban's not a dark god. It is has some connection to the uh, to the tribe of darkness war from uh, centuries ago in this storyline, and uh, and I th and it alludes to it in the some of the text before the boss fight. Okay. Sounds good. Yeah, I'm happy that you did explain that because I heard bits and pieces as I was going through, and I kind of like I watched a few videos and stuff as I was playing as well, and they alluded to it, so it's good to get a full explanation of how it connects. Falcom has done a pretty good job of having the connective lore tissue between uh, the different East games. I, 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 I'm trying to figure out if Eldeel or Eldeen. I think Eldeen is the name of the civilization, and Eldeel is an Eldeen that you meet in one of the East games. But uh, the conflict between the Eldeel and the, uh, and the Tribe of Darkness and, hum and humanity's role in all of this and Adol's role in all of this is a through line of the series that they've done a very good job of building over the years. Um, but they're not like the only one uh, because y you go into some weird uh, creation destruction, God goddess mythology in both East seven and East eight. That is sort of unconnected to the tribe of darkness, even though there are some tribe of darkness characters involved in those games. It's just basically just the world of East has a lot of ancient civilizations with secret powers <laughs> That you always seem to be uncovering, and Adol always seems to be the chosen hero that uh, <laughs> that, that ends the that ends the cycle of suffering. But uh, East Othenfelgana is uh, a, a quote unquote normal East game in that it's Adol and Dogi on an adventure, and that the Tribe of Darkness is involved somehow. Is a little bit 
not quite as crawling up its own mythology, but as uh, as a couple as other games in the series, because East Origin ties directly into every all of the events in East One and Two. Uh, Arkham Nepishtim started all the all the Eldial Tribe of Darkness story in a way that it, they really hit you over the head with some of that stuff. But uh, but Othenfeld Ghana is a more self-contained, slightly easier to digest East story that is still connected to the larger amount of East lore. But uh, I think we've probably mentioned every single East game in the modern series over the course of these podcasts. So I have to ask before we start talking about Galaban again, um, starting with you, Hillary, is there? A, a, a non Othenfilgana East game that you think you're interested in playing next? Because I mean, uh, both you and Tina uh, expressed some interest in the rest of the series and seemed to be enjoying uh, and and enjoyed Othenfilgana. So, is there a, another East game you think might be your next uh, East game to conquer? Yeah, definitely. I'm in the process of deciding. Actually, um, if I wanted to go for another game that had a similar play style. I was I was definitely thinking of Nepishtim um, next, just because it's, as we discussed before, one of the other ones that sort of tied everything in with this overarching story, another one that got redone. So I thought that'd be a good one. Um, if I wanted a different style, I was thinking of Seven. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. I mean, Nepishtim is in the same engine as this game and is uh, has a similar... A, a, a similar vibe and similar pace. The, the PC version is better than the PS2 version. And yes, seven, and, um, uh, seven. The PS, the PC version is probably also better than the PS than the PSP version in this case. It's sort of the first of the new style. Uh, uh, Tina, what what East games other than Felgan are you interested in trying next? So I actually really want to play Eight next, just because I really like the scenery and all the dragon designs. But also in this game, I know we got a few little hints of other countries and I kind of want to discover those for the other games so I'm not sure what they were even in like there was um, the guy in the bar came from like Garmin or something yeah mm-hmm. oh oh yeah I mean East takes place in you know a fake version of the world and each game takes place in basically a different country yeah um let's see Celseta takes place in fake Spain uh East 7 takes place in I think fake Tunisia or fake Carthage because it's in the it's in North Africa and it's in this sort of big port town so which I think and and it was in a conflict against the Rom Empire so I think it's supposed to be Carthage. Uh 5 which is oh. the 5 which is the only one that we don't have uh an official western release of takes place in fake Egypt. And East 8 is uh either fake Greece or fake island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. <laughs> Whatever whichever you prefer. But uh, and and the first two East games take place um, off the coast of fake France because the uh, there's an, a legend, excuse me, of a an ancient city called Care East, which was off the coast coast of Normandy, which is which is where the uh, East series gets its title from this um this lost city called of East that's part of uh, European or maybe specifically French legend. Oh yeah, I rem- I remember reading that that was sort of the name inspiration and. Maybe a little bit of like why it's vaguely fake European, but not much to do with the actual story. Yeah, and uh, and of course, Adel's uh, always clashing with the Rom Empire, which is obviously the Roman Empire. But they're uh, they're mostly oh, yeah. mostly villains in the East series. Uh, you meet a couple Romans that are uh, that are decent folks. There's a Roman commander that's uh, in in Celsetta and makes a cameo in Eight, who's uh, who's basically is Adel's um, ally now, but. Uh, like the, going through the East games is a bit of a world tour of this of this uh, world, and 
Um, I mean, my, Tina, if you like dragon designs, you might want to play E7 because that that whole that whole game is about like fighting legendary dragons f- oh, nice. from legendary ruins. <laughs> uh, and 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 in E8, uh, they say the word primordials about twelve thousand times in that game because it's the uh, it's the only island known that has primordial beasts on it. So a lot of it's a uh, a lot of dinosaurs oh, like okay. and uh, on E8, which I'm sure didn't escape your notice. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, a, a lot of dragon mythology in East Seven, a lot of uh, di- rampaging dinosaurs in East Eight, uh, but uh, and also I should mention uh, Seven is a sort of a normal RPG. You're visiting different parts of the world, you're doing dungeons, and there's very high world stakes that uh, there's there's very high plot stakes that increase uh, as you play through the game. But both Celseta and and Lacrimosa are focused on exploration a lot. In both of those games, you're sort of uh, trying to explore a, a space. It's a forest in Memories of Celseta, and it's an island that you're stranded on in uh, Lacrimosa of Dana. And it, so th- they're more non-linear than the other East game, than uh, than East Seven at least. And uh, there's a big focus on on exploring uh, a space and completing a map that is not present in other games in the series. But is but is a lot of fun. Like I loved filling out my map in Lacrimosa of Dana. Uh, but but that, yeah, Lacrimosa of Dana is the biggest and prettiest East game. It has it took me over fifty hours, which is twenty five hours more than second place. I think. Yeah. Uh, we didn't get all versions of four, did we? In oh no, um, four had two versions when it came out, which was uh one of which was Mask of the Sun and one of which was Dawn of East. But the, but neither of them were made by Falcom. Then one of those got remade for the PS2, but but isn't really in line with the other remakes. And then Memories of Celseta is a Vita game, which I think might have a, P- a PC version by now, that is incorporates some pl- plot details of Mask of the Sun and Dawn of East, and that's the official East 4 in the current timeline. So, and, uh, and Dawn of East is one of those lawnmower sumo wrestler games where Adol attacks enemies by bumping into them. So if you want to play an old-school version of one of those, Dawn- finding a translation of Dawn of East might be better than playing East 1 or 2, because those games aren't bad, but they are awfully primitive compared to the rest of the series. Yeah. Uh, I, I think I had to go on that East tangent because um, that that's it's part of who I am. I just I just walk up to people and tell them all about East. It's just part of my personality. <laughs> but uh, back to Oath and Felgana, uh, the final area is the island of Genos. You fight Dularn at the beginning, and then Bishop Nicholas near the end, and then the super weapon demon thing Galaban at the very end. Uh, how about Galaban's boss battle? I you are just jumping and dodging and ju- and. Uh, climbing ice pillars the whole time. That's a it's a more involved boss fight than anything else in the game. Oh, I died a lot. Yeah, I just couldn't figure out what to do in the beginning, so I watched some videos to help out with that. I uh, bought the item that gives you an extra life if you die, but only yeah, once. I got that too. And I uh, it was the only fight in the game that I uh, that I had that. That I needed that for because I, yeah. I think I, I think I bought it when I was in the clock tower because I finally had enough gold to do it. Yeah, at yeah. That point, but uh, the only time I needed it in the entire game was against Galaban, and just because he fills the screen with stuff. There's grids of la- lasers and fireballs and two giant hands smashing down, and I mentioned pillars of ice. There's uh, a lot of fire involved too. He just fills the screen with crap, and you need to be good at dodging, just so he exposes his eye for five seconds and you can throw fireballs at it. Yeah, it, it's a, a challenging final boss. I, I didn't have to check a video or anything this time. I like again, the muscle memory came back a little bit, and uh, and I was able to 
beat it on the first try out of some miracle, but I did do a tiny bit of grinding. I decided, because I, when I got to him, I was level 48. I'm like, eh, maybe I should get to 50 and see if I can upgrade my weapons a bit. So I threw on a yeah. podcast and gained two levels and uh, handled, handled him okay. Yeah, I definitely ended up, it, it was, I mean, there were a few points in the game where I said, okay, time to level up a little and check my equipment upgrade and come back. And I think I, I think I gained like three levels between my first and second attempt on the final boss. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't think the level, the level scaling in this game is disgusting. Um, we mentioned in the first episode that just upgrading your equipment or gaining one level does give you a meaningful amount of, uh, extra power Mm -hmm. because the, the attack and defense numbers are, you know, go up linearly. And um, I think gaining one level was uh, made the difference between the bats dealing three damage to me in the final area to dealing zero damage to me in the final area, <laughs> which is significant. Yeah, like, upgrading and leveling is significant in this game, and I don't know if I could have beaten that final boss if I had gone to 49 instead of 50. Yeah, like, after the first try, I did a lot of grinding, like, maxed out all my items. Uh, I used a lot of those potions to gain hit points, and then oh, I didn't find I didn't find him too difficult after that. Actually, I found the third Dulorn more difficult. Yeah, the final Dulorn was annoying just because she could fill the whole screen with swords. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like the way I figured it out was to make sure that the flying swords are targeting me when I'm on the ground, and then double jumping them after they start to move. Yeah. Uh, but, but the but the delay on them was weird, and she could throw them from different angles and. And uh, she, and she's invincible for a lot of that. And you have to and uh, but it did help that fireballs dealt around two hundred damage to her, and sword strikes only did about fifty damage to her. So when I discovered that, it's like, oh, okay, this will help a little bit. Yeah. And really, I only used fireballs for specific boss fights because I relied on the wind magic really heavily this whole game. Oh, yeah. Espe- especially for flying enemies. It's like I don't know how to hit a flying enemy out of the air because I suck at doing the up sma- the upswing. So I'm just gonna I'm gonna throw in the wind mag- magic and then sort of jump into them and see what happens. Yeah, I did the same thing. Yep. It worked a lot. It worked pretty well though, especially if you charge up wind magic and it takes up a third of the screen. That's pretty nice. Um, <laughs> did, did you guys have any uh, strategy for regular encounters by the end of the game? Did you favor wind or earth heavily? I pretty much did the same thing you did. Just cast the wind spell and jump. I think I used the wind spell more than just regular attack by the end of the game. <laughs> I would use the wind spell once and then slash around a bunch and then the wind yeah. spell again was my strategy most of the time. But uh, uh, Hillary, did you differ from that at all, or are you just, just um, as basic as the two of us? Only, only slightly. I mean, once I got the hang of the wind spell, especially for flying enemies, which always really annoyed me, or enemies that like you know change their elevation, that was really really helpful to just jump and do the wind spell and. But I did, I did incorporate some of the fire spells. Like, if an enemy had a lot of hit points, I would try and hit it with fire a little bit before I got close enough to sword strike. That's the only real difference. So, uh, at the end of the game, uh, Chester makes a noble sacrifice, but is still kind of a dick about it because he punches his sister in the stomach. And uh, but um, Adol and Dogi and Elena escape with their lives. And uh, and then peace returns to Felgana. And but speaking of peace returning to Felgana, uh, we didn't really talk about Redmont very much in the first episode. The the town that Adol keeps returning to in this game. And again, this is a one town RPG, and I don't love one one town RPGs a lot of the time. But at least Redmont's pleasant. And um, 
if you if you visit Redmond in between major story segments and dungeons, you uh, you can be rewarded with some side quests. Uh, like the the guy who desperately needs Revolor and will give you a lot of money early in the game if you if you uh, if you give him a bunch. That, yeah. that that's how I was able to afford the Bandit Slayer was that, uh-huh. was that side quest. Um, and uh, you uh, collecting some herbs for some sick Picards that give you uh, one of those potions that increases your HP. Yeah, uh, that's in the mountain area. The, the... Poor little guys get sick, and you have to go collecting these herbal leaves. And oh, I, I had forgotten all about this um, before replaying it this time. But the lady whose uh, son was presumed dead, and who oh, and who yeah. gives you the uh, who gives you the 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 amulet that lights up the mine, uh, you find the missing you find the missing kid. He was in the dungeon for uh, some for some indeterminate amount of time and, uh, and you can see a little cute re- uh, reunion with him and his with him and his uh, is either his mother or grandmother yeah i think it was his grandmother it um, is his grandmother because his parents i think part of what made it like part of the reason she wouldn't talk to you and was so traumatized is because she lost her child and her grandchild in the mine mm-hmm. but it's but it's it's sweet like 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 Bob, who's Bob? Oh, he's the missing guy with the grandma in town. That Bob's a, alive. Yeah, that, that was a that was a sweet little moment. Um, it was. But uh, but yeah, Redmond's a very very sort of cute idyllic RPG town. That's uh, uh, and and it's a very it's sort of very pretty looking, especially you know with uh, especially and like I don't know, like it's it's weirdly wholesome. <laughs> like everyone is just so pleasant and helpful and uh maybe the most pleasant and helpful of all of them was sister nell which made her her turn as dularn even all the more surprising yeah but, I, but... I have to admit at first i was like oh everything's so wholesome including the church it's nice that the clergy are actually helpful and like on your side uh yeah. yep. <laughs> whoops <laughs> Yeah, at first when she was missing at one point i thought that the that nicholas probably kidnapped her Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, like, I-, I thought that the turn of Nicholas being evil was way less surprising than Nell being evil. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe yeah. because he was, like, you know, he was part of the castle. He uh, he just has more of a traditional villain look to him than the sweet nun that's been that's been looking after the kids. <laughs> um, I, I uh, so yeah, I was a little thrown by that. But uh, did you guys have a favorite NPC town person or a favorite little bit about uh about Redmond? Because it is a nice little RPG town, isn't it? So I actually like that, um, you know, the Count's kids, just, like, acting like normal little kids and playing with the other kids in the camp. Yeah. And um, did either of you do the side quest where you had to escort the boy back to the castle? No, I think I missed that. I mentioned it in the previous episode. I uh, went back. Oh, okay, yeah. There there is a side quest where you meet the wife and kids, um, but you have to do it before you you get the the statue in the mine. Yes. Um, the the abandoned mine, not the quarry. So like a, after the zone of lava, but before the abandoned mine. Um, and it's uh, it, you get an item from it that's pretty helpful, and you get to meet the the uh, count the count's wife and kids before Valestine Castle. But um, it is cute to know that like oh the um th- this rich asshole at least has a nice family, and they're not and they're not trying to make the family also rich assholes. Yeah. I think one of my favorites was probably probably the little girl. I think her name was. Anya? Oh, is she the one that makes you play uh, Find the Revolver? Yes, yes, she is. <laughs> that, was, that was great. Um, I walked into town and her dad was like, I, a bunch of ore went missing from my house. I have no idea. I think my daughter took it. I don't know what she, don't know what she would do with it. And it turns hey, out she wanted to play pirates. Yep, but hey, now Adol has some ore and I'm in favor of that. Yeah. 
She also does a pirate voice, and it's really cute. Uh, but yeah, Redmond's a nice RPG town, and this is a nice RPG with with nice dungeons and plot and everything. And it, and uh, but it, it ends the way many East games do, with a dull uh, leap, like fading off into the, dis- the into the distance, seeking more adventures with some poor lovelorn lady left behind. <laughs> Seriously, it happens in every single East game. Just about, I, I can't I can't think of an exception. And Dogie decides to stay in his hometown for a while, too. Yeah, that's a, that's a little surprising, because normally Dogie's joining Adol uh, as they walk off into the into the distance. But I think I, I think this is Falcom deliberately subverting that a little bit and explaining why Dogie's not in East 4, I, yep. I think. But the uh, but I'm, I thought East 4 was supposed to take place before East 3. I'm not sure. The, the, the timeline's a little confusing. I'd have to do some wiki research before I could say exactly that for sure. But... Uh, Again, this is a really short RPG. I, I think I mentioned I thought it was 12 to 15 hours in the first episode. I finished it in just under 10. Wow. So, like, this is, this is an RPG you could beat in a weekend um, if you, you know, if you decide to have a, a weekend very indoors. But uh, I, I think that there's that there's real satisfaction and substance here for a 10-hour RPG. Like, I, and I, uh, I don't know if, com- I don't want to complain exactly, but I would sort of prefer that East games were closer to the 10 and 20 hour range than the 50 hour Lacrimosa of Dana range, because I think there's real value in an RPG that doesn't waste your time. And I feel like that, that Oath and Felgana didn't waste any of my time. Oh, you level up to level 50 in 10 hours and beat some challenging final bosses. And the ending is cute. Like, yeah, that's great. I don't need to play a hundred hour RPG every single, uh, every time I, I put a new game into my, PS4. This is uh, bre- brevity is the soul of wit, and this game yeah. is sh- this game is short, but very very sweet. I, I really li- I really like Oath and Felgana, and because it's a sort of typical East game in a lot of ways, it's I think it's a really good choice for like first game first East game you play, first East game on Retro Encounter. It, it, I think it was yeah. an ideal choice. Yeah, me too, and I I think you're absolutely right. It's a nice contained chapter with a fun setting fun gameplay and it you know it doesn't take forever so i i do think there's value there yeah i really like shorter games myself it's good for busy people yeah i'm i am not a teenager with all the time in the world anymore i'm an yeah. i'm an adult who works 40 hours a week and uh has a house to maintain and and, and uh some semblance of a social life so I I don't have the time I had for long RPGs in the past. So the end result of that is I really value short, dense um, game experiences, and I also play handheld RPGs probably three times more than console RPGs. Like I, I play my Switch in handheld mode ninety percent of the time because I can do it around the house or take it on the train or play it on breaks at work. <laughs> so yeah, uh, East. Oath and Felgana is a short game, and that really jumped out at me, and it made me want more short games like this. Yeah, like it's not too padded out with a hundred pointless little side quests. I like that. Yeah, I, I think that um, it, early on they say that hey, there's four statues, and they, they could have world-shaping implications, and then and then you're you know you find four statues, you find out what's going on with the world, and then you go through some final dungeons and some big plot twists. This. Yep. Yeah. Um, the, uh, there's little wasted space in Oath and Felgana, and uh, that felt great. But, okay, 
I think we're near the end of our discussion here, but uh, we, we've talked about East the Oath and Felgana. We've talked about every other East game. We've talked about the East fighting game for PSP that I'm still mildly obsessed with 10 years later. <laughs> or 10 years after it came out, I should say. Uh, and, you know, like, Falcom games have such colorful characters and good writing and uh, appealing settings. I think we probably don't do enough Falcom on this podcast. Uh, maybe even later this year we'll do a... We'll do another Falcom game, but I'm, I'm but I'm still in the planning stages for everything beyond the next couple months. But uh, listeners, thank you so much for uh, joining us on our East Theoth and Felgana journey that went a little all over the place, but stayed mostly in Felgana. And thank you, Hillary, and thank you, Tina, for uh, playing this game with me. I had a lot of fun replaying it. This was a game I loved at the time, and maybe and respect maybe even a little more after a second round. It was a nice little picture of Dogie's hometown and. I, I could honestly seeing it probably even if I play more yeast games being a favorite. <laughs> yeah, it's either this or seven is my favorite. I think um, seven has a more involved story, but and more characters, and I really really liked the the setting and characters. But the action was very competent. Again, it felt like hip, hipster secret of mana. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, seven and Felgana have sort of different shapes and tones. And Felgana is sort of my favorite of the solo adult games, and East and Seven is my favorite of the party adult games. And I I I don't want to choose a favorite between those two, but uh, Felgana is safely in my tie for first place as uh, among the East series. And again, I mentioned this just seconds ago, but I think it's a good starting point for the series uh, for a series newcomer as well. Yeah, I definitely want to see more of this world. Yeah, and uh, really, there isn't a loser among any of them. If I, if I had to pick a least favorite, it was probably the first East game, because there's some design uh, elements that do not hold up in 2019. I'm thinking of two boss battles very, very mm-hmm. specifically. But I, I recommend the whole series, and even and even if you play all of them besides the first two, going I mean, the first one's only like three and a half hours long. Maybe it's worth it as a history lesson, yeah. or, or as a, a, a <laughs> let's play in just a few sittings. But okay, we're not now. We're uh, if we get into streaming and let's play talk. Now the episode's really. Over. <laughs> I've already thanked the listeners, but uh, listeners, if you want to uh, hear more f- from us, an RPG fan, you can always visit RPGFan.com. We have uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Twitch streaming, uh, a Discord channel, online forums. We have a lot of ways you can interact with us and, and see what we're doing. Uh, we also have articles and reviews that go up almost every day of the week. Uh, Tina, you even have a, I want to say, a bi-weekly uh, series on... Um, yeah, bi-weekly. Yeah, bi- on, uh, on Kickstarted or, uh, or um, indie RPG games that are still in the planning and campaigning stage uh, uh, called, crowd- called Crowdfunding Chronicles. And... Um, it's because I'm not on Kickstarter checking out stuff on my own every week. I've been relying on crowdfunding chronicles to see if I to see if I want to spend any early dollars. At least yeah, the past couple so months. There's so much interesting stuff coming out. Yeah. yeah, I think the Kickstarter boom has died down a little bit from its most intense days in the, yeah. of like the, the the two years after uh, after Broken Age happened. But it, it's still a big source of um, like and a source of creativity for in the game space. And, and maybe there's even more. Uh, board game and uh, and pen and paper RPG stuff in Kickstarter than video yeah, games I was nowadays. About that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a... like tabletop seems to be really, really big on Kickstarter. Yeah, I think I think that 
a lot of their biggest campaigns of all time have been tabletop games, but mm-hmm. I, 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 I did not do the research ahead of time, so I, I'm not gonna, <laughs> I won't dwell on it very longer. So yeah, please check out Crowdfunding Chronicles and our reviews and music reviews on RPGFan.com. We also have two other fine podcasts, Random Encounter, starring Greg Delmage, and Rhythm Encounter, starring a variety of people over the years. Rhythm Encounter is currently on hiatus, but the, it, there are plans to bring it back, possibly even later this year. And uh, we also have many previous Retro Encounter episodes, 183 of them, in fact, and uh, but only four of them, maybe five, are about Falcom games, so if you're looking for a Falcom-centered podcast, I apologize. We're, we aren't quite there yet. But, uh, listeners, if you want to give us feedback or um, comment on the podcast, the best way to do so is email to email retro at rpgfan.com, and you can also find us on Twitter and Instagram and all those other places that I mentioned before, but individually, what's the best way to reach us? Uh, let's have us tell you, starting with Tina. Uh, Kittensoft39 on Twitter and Instagram. The same on Tumblr, but I hardly use it. It's like, no one uses Tumblr anymore. <laughs> R.I.P. Tumblr. Uh, and Hillary, how can listeners reach you? Um, Hillary relates that the best way to reach her is as EP Fire on the RPG Fan Discord. And thanks everyone for tuning in. Okay, uh, all right. Hillary evidently has become a silent protagonist and we're now receiving her communications via third-person voiceover. That's interesting. But but I'm still in the first person, so you can find me, Mike Solosi, on Twitter, at TheRealMonsoon most of the time, at EvokerForDogs other times. I'm also MonsoonMike on the RPG Fan Discord. So... That was our little trip to Felgana. Uh, it's time to go and sail off into the horizon and hopefully not get shipwrecked on some other podcast. Listeners, thank you. Good night and good luck. <laughs>